0: You to, to picture this with me. Your team is down by one run. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. You step up to the plate. And you got a runner on third base. There's two outs in the game. How do you feel about that? Some of you are like, all right, let's go. I got this. I'm about to be the hero. I'm going to hit a home run or I'm going to get a base hit and move the runner. We're not going to lose. I've got this. Others of you are terrified. You are scared to death because you don't want to be the reason why your team loses the game. I've been there, and I know how I would react. I was terrified. I was not confident at all. I was not good at baseball. I was in junior varsity baseball in like ninth or tenth grade. Step up, my team's down by one run, runner on third base, two outs. And I was scared to death. And you want to know how nervous I was is, I am usually terrified of the baseball. I didn't like getting hit with it. I, I don't think anyone does, but people try to act tough and act like they don't care, but I don't like getting hit with a baseball. And so I was usually scared of that. And that was usually running through my mind. But this time I was more scared of losing the game for my team. So the pitcher throws it and is it a little bit inside. So I just kind of stepped into it and got hit. So I didn't have to be the one that lost the game for my team. And that's just been a pattern in my life when it comes to sports or athletics and, and pressures on, I can remember being in Little League and pitching, and I ended up at the last inning walking a guy, giving up a hit, walking another guy, and then hitting someone else to walk in the game-winning run. So I lost the game for my team. It's just a pattern for me. When there's pressure in some kind of sporting event, I just panicked. I overthought it. And, and I didn't realize, really fully understand until my last couple years of football when I was at Mercer, that I play my best. When I'm just having fun, when I'm just just relaxing, enjoying my time. See, I realized that it was my last couple years of football. I decided that I was done being stressed about it. I was just going to have fun with it. And when I did that, my play completely changed. I didn't need someone to sit there and tell me, hey, do this or, or run faster or do that. What I needed was my mentality to change. I didn't need practical steps. I needed a change in my whole outlook and my mentality. Now, why do I tell you that embarrassing thing about myself? Because tonight, in the passage we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, it's not going to be these step one, two, three. It's not going to be some practical, hey, do this or do that. What it is, though, it's a mentality that Paul wants us to embrace. It's a mentality that if we will wrap our minds around it, wrap our hearts around it, it will change things in our lives. And so that's where we're going tonight. We'll be, again, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And I'm just going to walk us through this passage, and it's a letter from the Apostle Paul. So just starting off in verse 14, it says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So let's pause here for a second. So this is Paul writing a prayer for the people of Ephesus. Now there's a few things I want to point out here about uh, Paul's prayer here. What, what What it's showing in this prayer is that Paul has a deep love and passion for the people of Ephesus. Now how do we know that? Well one, you can see it from the posture of his prayer. When he prays, it says he bows his knees. He bows down before the Father. See, to us, that doesn't seem completely abnormal. We see people do that from time to time. But in Jewish culture, they prayed with their hands lifted up like this. And so Paul's prayer would have been abnormal. It wouldn't have been how they usually prayed. So it shows passion. He's falling down at the feet of the Lord, begging and pleading this prayer before God. You can also see the passion throughout this prayer uh, as we read it, you'll see it, it's, it's kind of over-dramatized. That's not really Paul's style. Paul is a straight shooter. He's very direct. But in this prayer, it's very over-dramatic in ways. He, he's very passionate in his prayer. And you can also see that he has a great love for the people of Ephesus because in the book of Acts, chapter 20, what you see is that Paul has been with the people of Ephesus for three years. He's been sharing the gospel with them, living among them, being with them all the time, preaching, teaching. And then here he's about to go and leave them and go to Jerusalem, and he's not going to ever see them again. And what you find in verses 36 through 38 in Acts 20, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was so much weeping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him, accompanied him to the ship. So there you have him saying a tearful goodbye among friends and then walking him and leaving and sending him off on the ship. And some of you have been there before, right, where you have really close friends who have moved away or maybe you've gone and left or maybe it was your parents when you left for college. There's this tearful goodbye. You only do that when you deeply care about the people. And so Paul, what we see is he has such a deep love and a passion For the people of Ephesus. But one thing to point out in this book of Ephesians, what scholars will note is that Ephesians doesn't seem very personal. See, other letters of Paul seem very personal. He identifies in the letter just uh, some very personal things, but in the book of Ephesians, it doesn't seem that personal. And the reason for this probably is because when Paul left, the church continued to explode and continued to grow. And that meant that there was a ton of people he did not actually know. So what we see here, Paul still has a deep love and a deep passion for them, even though he does not know them all personally. Now, here's why I tell you that for a couple of things. One, as we read this prayer, I want you to know the context. I want you to know the heart behind Paul's letter. I want you to feel his love in this letter, feel his passion in his letter. But for the second uh, reason why I tell you that is because that, that love and that passion that he has for Ephesus is like the love and the passion I have for you guys. I have a deep love and a passion for college students in this area, and it's been like that for years now. Uh, I was uh, in college. I can trace it all the way back to college when Sarah, my my wife Sarah, if y'all haven't met her yet, you need to meet her. She's awesome. But we led a Bible study together in a a living room, and we had over 20 people just piled into this little living room, 20 college students, and we'd sing worship songs, and we'd pray, and we'd read scripture together, and it was an awesome community. And then fast forward a few years, when I was a student pastor at another church, I still had these seeds of a passion and a heart for college-age students in this area. And so I sat down with Pastor Kevin, the pastor here at Northway, And I I showed him what I thought college ministry could look like at this church because we did not have college ministry here. And after I walked him through it and talked with him, a month later, actually two years to this month, we started Northway College here. We started this ministry up, and ever since it's been really cool because I get to put personal faces to the love and the passion that I've had for so long. And so even though I don't know many of you, I I know a good bit of you, but even though I don't know all of you, I have a deep love and a passion for you guys. And the reason why I tell you that is this prayer that Paul has for the people of Ephesus is my prayer for y'all. And as we read this, I want you to realize that this is a prayer that Paul's praying for the church. And this is also my prayer for you guys as well. And I want you to take this into your hearts as well. And so we're going to walk through this prayer and, and break it apart. So continuing reading, it says this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he prays that they would be strengthened in their inner being, in the very core of who they are. So to to get a better picture of this, I think we need to think through what does strength look like and what does weakness look like. So you think someone who is weak, you think maybe weary. You think someone who, who can't continue to go on. I think back vividly to a memory when I was in high school playing football, our uh, defensive backs got torched that night before. And so the next practice, our coach made us do so many backpedaling steps. And so I was sitting there doing all these backpedals and it got to the point where my legs literally could not go anymore. And I was like every step hitting the ground because they could not go. They were just so tired, they were so weak. That's, that's a picture of weakness. Another uh, picture we think is just fragile, frail, easily broken. I picture my granddad, who, who recently, this past year, went through cancer and battled cancer, and he went from like 230 pounds to like 160. And I picture just him sitting in that chair, just so frail and so weak. I picture lethargic, some ap- apathy. There's no passion. There's no energy in your life. You think weakness is someone who's unable to accomplish some act of strength. So this is the picture of weakness. And, and think about what weakness means to your innermost being, your innermost core. You are, if you're weak, you're, you're tired, you're exhausted. You don't feel like you can continue and endure any further. And again, some of you feel that. You are exhausted. At the very fire of who you are, you are worn out. You are drained. You are emotionally and spiritually worn out and exhausted. You, are, you feel weak. Think of just fragility, that external circumstances, external things can break you easily when you are weak to your innermost core. Think lethargic, you have no passion, no excitement in your heart. You're unable to accomplish things when you're weak to your innermost core. And so Paul's prayer for them is that they would be strengthened in their innermost being, that they would be able to endure, that they would be able to push through that they would not be easily broken from external circumstances, that they would have a passion and a zeal in their hearts, just an energy inside the very most core of who they are, that they would be able to accomplish great and mighty things through the power of the Holy Spirit, things that are far beyond their own ability. This is the prayer that Paul has for the people of Ephesus, and this is my prayer for you, that you would be strengthened to your core, But look at how he says you're you're able to be strengthened. Does he say, hey, go do this and then be strengthened? No. He says that you're strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's pleading with God, saying, God, send your spirit to strengthen them. It's not anything we do on our own. It's purely through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that means for us, if we we want this, we need to ask for this. Beg God, plead with God to send his spirit to strengthen us. Continuing on in the next verse. It says that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, we use this language some in the church. We say, we pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts. And usually when we refer to it, we're talking about salvation, praying that people come to know Jesus. And that's not a bad way to refer to it, but that's not exactly what Paul's referring to here. See, Paul is speaking to people who are already believers, already Christians And so what he's saying is that Christ may dwell, may be at home in their hearts, may take up residence in their hearts, not just stay, but take root, take up residence. And think about it this way. How do you know, for those of you who've been to to our house, how do you know that Sarah lives in that house? There's a few different things. You can look and see her clothes, right? They're obviously not mine. You can look and see that, you know, Ryan's typically a little bit more organized, and the house isn't that organized sometimes, so maybe it's Sarah. Um, but the really telling sign is that our house looks like it's been copy and pasted from Fixer Upper. Sarah has incredible style. And you look at our house, and it looks like something out of a magazine. And you know that I didn't do that. <laughs> see, before she came... My places I stayed did not look anything like that. But then when she moved in, she began to make herself at home and, and bring her stuff in and to decorate and move things around and get rid of some of my stuff. And now our house looks like that because she has taken up residence in this place. She's not just staying. She's living. She's at home there. That's the language that Paul is using here for the people of Ephesus. He says, hey, I hope and pray that Christ— would take up residence in your hearts, that Christ would be at home in your hearts. Not that just he's just staying there, but that he is making himself at home in the very core of who you are, inside of your hearts. But if we're honest, some of you feel this, maybe many of you if you're really honest, that there are parts of our hearts, there are times, parts of our lives, that we don't want him to come and, and take up residency in because we know that when Christ moves in, he's going to change things. He's going to shift things. There's going to be things about my life that will not stay the same, and we don't want him to do that. I mean, like I said, when I, before Sarah moved in, my house didn't look that way. I had very practical decorations. I had Batman decorations, and then when Sarah moved in, she said, that's not staying, and it was a little bit of a fight. I, I tried to get her to at least give me just one room and She gave me half of a corner of one room. But the point being, when she moved in, it wasn't going to stay the same, and there was a little bit of a kickback in my heart. Some of you feel that way. When I say I want Christ to move into your hearts and to be at home and to start setting up shop there, there's a kickback. You don't want to change certain things. You don't want to give it up. There's other areas where maybe not just that we don't want to give it up, but we feel ashamed of it. I think of uh, I, I can remember specifically when we were at our old church, we had this lady, um, she was an older lady, very prim and very proper, who was coming to pick up her, her students from our house. We were hanging out with them, and our apartment was trash. Just, uh, it was just a rough week, and I felt so embarrassed when she walked into our house or walked into our apartment. I felt a little ashamed. See, that's the picture some of you feel when we say, hey, I want Christ to take up residency in your heart. You start thinking of the places you've been and the places uh, that you've gone and things that you've done and things that you're currently doing. And you're like, I don't want him here because I know this isn't going to please him. And so you feel guilt and you feel shame. But what Paul's praying and what I'm praying for you guys is that you would allow Christ to move in. Know that he's not coming in to cast shame He's not coming in to condemn you. He's coming in to to redeem you. Yes, he's going to change things. Yes, it's going to be difficult sometimes to allow him to do it, but it will be for the better. I'm so glad my house looks like it's from a fixer-upper ad. It's a good thing. It didn't need to look like I decorated. It would be terrible. None of y'all would want to come over. It, It was a good thing that Sarah came and took up residence in the house. It's a good thing when Jesus moves into your heart and begins to change things. It's for the better. We just have to trust that. Continuing on in in the verses in the prayer, it says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And so this prayer is centralized on the love of Christ, and he prays that they would be rooted and grounded in it, prays that they'd be able to comprehend and understand it. See, what we know to be true is that a lack of love it, it affects our behavior. I think of Sarah's job. She uh, uh, works with foster care parents and works in social work, and so she sees a lot of very broken kids. And what you see so often with these kids is that they did not get any love from their parents, and so they act out in a bunch of different ways to try to get that affection, try to get that attention from somewhere else. You see young ladies running to guys who will prostitute them out for drugs just so they can feel loved from somewhere. You see so much reckless living because they are seeking for love, And we know this to be true even in our own lives, that when there's a lack of love, it leads to reckless living. Scarcity leads to desperation, and desperation leads to reckless actions. Where there's a perceived vacancy of love, it changes how we live. And so what Paul prays is that he prays for the love of Christ. Now, the love of Christ, what is it? It's a love that pursues us. That chases us. That from the time we stepped on this earth, we have been running from our creator, God. We have been deep in sin. We have rebelled and rejected him. But thank, thank the Lord that he chases us. That he pursues us. I think to, the, to Hosea and Gomer. Gomer, the, the wife of Hosea, who leaves and runs after all these other men who is unfaithful to her husband, but but Hosea chases after her. We have a love that pursues us. Jesus says it's like a shepherd with, with sheep, and one sheep leaves the flock, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go chase down that one sheep to bring him back. That's the love of our God, is that though we are sinners, Christ stepped down into this earth to chase after us. But it's not just love that pursues, it's a love that sacrifices, that lays down its life for us. Uh, Jesus is going to say in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Love sacrifices, and that's what Christ does for us, is that our sin incurred a debt. There was a payment that had to be paid, and instead of Allowing us to pay our own debt, Jesus stepped in and took the, the penalty for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins, a debt that he did not deserve. Love sacrifices. But thankfully, Jesus did not stay dead. He arose from the grave in victory. And with that, love forgives. Love forgives. I have the, the image of the prodigal son story that Jesus tells where the son goes to the dad and basically says, hey, I want nothing to do with you, and essentially spits in his face, takes his inheritance, and runs and squanders it all. But then when the son comes back, the father doesn't rebuke him or cast him out. He runs and greets him. He embraces him. He he slaughters the fattened calf and, and throws this big party for him. He restores his sonship. He says, you are my child once again. That's what the love of Christ is, is it forgives our sins. It says, I don't care where you've been or how far you've run or how ashamed you are, I forgive you. Your sins were taken care of on the cross of Christ. And it's a love that restores That while we were far away from our Father, that we had no hope of reconciliation, but through Jesus, through his love, we have relationship once again. Just like we were designed from the beginning in Genesis when we walked hand in hand with God, we can once again do that. We can once again be in relationship. That's the love of Christ. And so what it says is I want you to be rooted in that love. I want you to have a strong foundation. The pictures of a tree with deep roots A tree with deep roots is not easily blown by the wind or external factors. It doesn't fall over. It stays strong. Something with a strong foundation can be built on because it won't crumble. It says, I want you to be rooted in this love. I want you to have a strong foundation. You're not going to be threatened by any external environment. My love is secure. You will not lose my love. There's nothing you can do to lose my love. It is there. It is firm. You don't have to question it. I want you to be rooted in that. Build your life on that love, not on anything else. And he says, I want you to comprehend it. I want you to know how deep, how wide it is. The picture is that you're standing there, and you look, and as far as you can see to the right is God's love. And as far as you can see, the left is God's love. You look forward and behind you. And as far as you can see is God's love, you look up and you look down. As far as you can see is God's love, you are completely surrounded and engulfed by the love of Christ. There's nothing that can get to you. You feel safe. You feel secure. You feel like like nothing can touch you. He said, I want you to, to comprehend that love. And then when you do, he finishes with this verse. It says this, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. That you would be filled to the fullness of God. The picture is here that you are empty, but then when you comprehend and understand the depth of the love of Christ, you are filled, you are satisfied. We know that, like we said earlier, when there's an emptiness, there's a vacancy, we chase other things to fill it. And what we know to be true is that in in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And So the only thing that can satisfy the void in our hearts is an eternal being, and that's God himself. And so when you comprehend the love of God, you feel satisfied, you hunger, you thirst no more. Uh, We've been doing a study, and we just studied the book of Ephesians, and I had a buddy named Brandon who had a really good comment on this verse. He says, Full is such a good word. It makes me think of having a nice meal and not overeating but being satisfied. It makes me think of getting to catch up with friends after a long absence. It makes me think about getting a big hug from my wife when I'm worn down and worn out from work. We're not called to live out of a shortage of resources or love. We're offered the chance to live out of the fullness and abundance. See, when you comprehend the depths of the love that is demonstrated for you on the cross, you are fulfilled, you are satisfied, and then you live from there. And so, my prayer for you is that you would be strengthened, that Christ would be at home in your heart, that you'd be rooted and grounded in Christ's love, that you would comprehend the love of Christ, and that you would be filled by the fullness of God. And what's so cool, it says in these last verses here, It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we ask God for these things, when Paul asked that for the people of Ephesus, when I ask this for you guys, when you ask this for yourselves, it says that God will do immeasurably more than you can even think or comprehend. All these things that we talked about, all these things that are true are full to an extent that you can't even imagine or comprehend when you ask for that. And then what's so incredible is the next chapter in Ephesians that talks about from that fullness, then you live. You live a life worthy of your calling. You follow in obedience and Christ moves in and through you from that fullness. The practical comes, but you have to grasp this first. And so I want to close with this as the band's coming up here in just a second, some of you in here, you are still running. You are still running from your Father who loves you. You are still deep in the depths of sin. You feel ashamed at the things that you have done, the places you have been. You need to understand, you need to know that Christ's love is extended for you. That when Christ went to the cross, it was for you. That if you would put your faith and trust in his life, his death, his resurrection, that your sins are taken care of, that your sins were dealt with and crucified to the cross of Christ. That means you have no shame, no condemnation, that you are ultimately forgiven, that you are restored. And for some of you, this is your step, that you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. Others of you, though, you are believers. You are followers of Christ. But you do what we so often do, and you forget the depth of Christ's love for you. You've been wandering, you've been straying, you've gone down paths you never thought you would go, and you feel guilty, you feel ashamed. But what you need to be reminded is of the great love of Christ. You need to be strengthened at your core. You need to be rooted and grounded and filled with the fullness of God. Remember that your sin has no power over you. You were forgiven your sins were dealt with ultimately on the cross of Christ. Don't forget that. Live in light of that. And then out of that fullness, go and do all that God has called you to do. Do immeasurably more than you could ever believe or understand or comprehend with Christ working in and through you. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for your love. God, thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Lord. God, I pray, I pray, I pray that you would fill these students with your love. Lord, that you would strengthen them to their their core. Lord, that they would be rooted and grounded in your love, that they would comprehend the depths of your love, that though they know and they're well aware of their sin and the, the ways they failed you and rejected you, Lord, that they would know that your grace abounds even more, that your love is deeper than their sin. Let them cast aside the lies and the whispers of the enemy and live in light of the truth of your grace and of your cross. Be filled with your fullness and go and abound in your love and and proclaim your glory on their campus, in their communities, to their friends, Lord. Let them live in the fullness of your love. We love you and we praise you. You never pray. Amen.